Amen. Well, you guys look great from here. Good job, everyone. You look sharp. You dressed up this morning. Good job. You all, frankly, you all look nicer than I do. I'm a little jealous. Thank you. Um, it's good to be with you this morning. It's also lovely to hear you all sing. Isn't, don't we love our worship team? Oh, my gosh. That was so great. So great to be up here and hear you sing. Well, my name is Matt Rumbaugh. For those of you I haven't met, my wife, Christy, and I lead the small group that meets in Random Hills, and I serve as one of the elders here. It's my pleasure to be with you. Um, I want to start this morning with a story. So I first moved to North Virginia in the summer of 1990. That was, what, 31 years ago. I was 18 years old. Actually, I'm not even sure I was 18 years old yet, which is important because I had just started to learn how to drive. But I had a deal with my dad, and my, our deal was I could use his car as much as and whatever I wanted as long as I dropped him off at his carpool every day. So that way he could go to work, and then I was free to do whatever it is I needed to do. Usually go to school, but if I wanted to see friends or whatever. So it's a good deal, right? I can drive my dad's car as long as I just drop him off at a certain place every day. But the, the hitch was if there was, a, if there was a change in his schedule, if I needed to go pick him up early, late, whatever, like that, I was supposed to be available to do that. So one day he says to me, son, I have, a, I have to work late. I have a meeting, uh, so I need you to pick me up at such and such a time at the Vienna Metro Station. And uh, I said, okay, but truth be told, I was a little nervous. Like I said, I hadn't driven much in the Northern Virginia. You guys have driven in Northern Virginia a little bit, right? Things are crazy. Um, this was a long time ago. Maybe not so crazy as it is now, but still a little bit crazy. So I'm a little nervous, but I say yes, because, well, I like having a car, and I like my dad. And so, like, how hard can this be? So the day comes, I get onto the Interstate 66. I hadn't, I'm not sure I'd ever driven on Interstate 66. I may have been to the Vienna Metro a couple times or two, but I'd certainly never driven there. So I get on. In fact, I'm pretty sure I got on right down the street here at 123. And I'm a little nervous, but I get on the uh, interstate, and I'm driving. I'm driving. I'm like, okay, yeah, I can do this. Cool. All I have to do is go one exit, get off. I find the little pickup area. I find my dad. I'm good to go. And so I drive, and I drive, and I drive, and I drive, and then it hits me, wait a minute, if I'm getting close to a metro station, I ought to be seeing train tracks. No, no train tracks. So I drive a little bit more, and I'm like, okay, wait a minute, I, I, wait, this is not right, where, where am I going, what am I doing? And then I realize I'm going the wrong direction. I should have been going east, but I was going West. So, of course, when you realize you're going the wrong direction, you have a moment of panic. This has happened to you guys before, right? So, I start looking for my options. I'm on an interstate highway. I'm going 60 some miles an hour. I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to do. And then, one of the most glorious sights I have ever seen in my life an exit. Route 28 in Centerville, to be specific. Shout out, Centerville Small Group. Yes, right close to what is now Shannon Shaughnessy's house. And this is just a glorious moment for me. I get off the interstate. I make a left turn. I make another left turn. I'm back on the interstate going in the correct dis uh, direction this time. Now, today you need like a PhD in geography to make that exit. You guys been out there lately? It's bananas, right? Back then it was relatively simple. Left turn, left turn, I'm good to go. So I speed. I drove as fast as I've ever driven in my life. I make it to the Vienna Metro Station. I find my dad. Pick him. He gets in the car, and he is none the wiser until I tell him this story, and he laughs. So 
Why am I sharing this? Because the chance to turn around for me was awesome. As I'm going, it occurs to me, not only am I a little bit panicked because I'm going the wrong direction, but I don't want to disappoint my dad. For one thing, I like my dad. I don't want him to be angry at me, but I also don't want him to take away my car privileges. You know, I got, I've got a pretty good deal here. So you can imagine as I get turned around, go the right direction and find him, the joy that it was waiting for me. You guys get it? Yeah. So... Why am I telling you the story? I'm telling you this because this points to a key word that is important for us as followers of Christ, and that is the word repentance. It's kind of a churchy word. We don't use it in a lot of contexts, but what it really means is to turn around, and it is for situations exactly like me on that interstate that night. I'm going the wrong direction, and I need a chance to turn around and go the right direction. Now, I know so for some of you, when I say this word repentance, it's maybe a little bit loaded, a little bit scary. Maybe it even feels judgy or like you have visions of like some weird man maybe on your college campus or in a street corner somewhere who's yelling at you, repent, and it feels sort of judgy, but I'm here to tell you today It's a beautiful word. It's a word that should fill us with joy. Repentance is a gift. And so that's what I want us to explore today. So just like my adventure going to the metro, it means we're headed, we realize we're headed in the wrong direction. We turn around, we travel with speed in the right direction to the joy of our waiting father. Um, Yeah, so let's get into our big idea this morning. In fact, it's, uh, we'll put it on the screen here. It's simply this, repentance is a gift. And in receiving that gift, we glorify our Father. Repentance is a gift, and receiving that gift, we glorify our Father. To show you what I mean, let's turn to the Word of God. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 34. If you don't have a Bible, maybe just raise your hand. We've got some at the stations down here. You're welcome to grab that. I know a lot of you use your phones as well. Uh, that's a little too new school for me, but that's okay. You guys uh, are welcome to do that. Exodus chapter 4. If you were with us uh, a couple years ago, Pastor Jeff did a pass- uh, study all the way through the book of uh, Exodus. We're going to revisit that today. This passage that we're going to look at, we're going to be in chapter 34. It's one of the most important in the whole Bible. In fact, it is one of the most referred to passages in the whole Bible. It shows up almost like a hyperlink if you're on Wikipedia or one of those pages. It is one of the most linked back to passages in all of Scripture. Um, to set the scene, the Israelites, God people, they have been liberated from somewhere around 400 years of slavery in the country of Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. You guys saw the movie, right? So big, it's a hole through the sea. They walked through. God miraculously parted. They're hanging out at the bottom of a mountain called Sinai. And their leader, Moses, has gone to the top of this mountain to meet with God and find out what the deal is. What does he want them to do? There, God has revealed that he wants to enter into a covenant or partnership with them. Uh, And so he's laying out the terms of this agreement. Now, in the course of this, he wants the Israelites to understand not just that he has instructions for them, but who he is in his character. And that's going to be really important for us this morning. Now, before he even gets the chance to do this, Israel has sinned greatly. The first time Moses goes up this mountain, he's hanging up there for a long time. And the Israelites have too much time on their hands. They start to fashion idols out of gold in the shape of cows. And they have this terrible uh, feast to worship these. And God is very angry about this. He's ready to smite them, start over with Moses, Moses compels him to change his mind. And so God says, okay, Moses, I hear you. I'm not going to uh, address them in my anger. And so we're going to get things straight right here. So this is that moment. He's held back his anger, and he agrees to continue with them. So let's pick up in Exodus 34. We're going to be in verse 6. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. All right, let's stop there for a second. There's a lot to digest. If you're taking notes, I want you to jot down this. We don't just repent from something. We repent to someone. We don't just repent from something. We repent to someone. So as God starts to describe who he is to Moses, look at the portrait that he paints with his words. He describes himself as merciful. That is, he doesn't punish us in the way that our sin deserves. He describes himself as gracious. That is, showing us favor that we don't earn through our own merit. He describes himself as slow to anger. Not that he doesn't get angry, but he's slow to anger. also says that he abounds. That is, he floods over with faithfulness, this idea that he always finishes the thing that he starts. He abounds in this thing. And then there's this beautiful word or term that in your Bible, steadfast love. So I've highlighted this on the screen. You can see this is going to be really important for us this morning. It's a, it should be a little bit more pronounced. In Hebrew, this word is hesed. Hesed. Can you guys say that with me? Hesed. It's that hard CH sound. I can't really do it right. Some of you can. Hesed. So in, in Hebrew, this word is really important. It's actually, it's a big word. It, it, there's no English word that really ju- does it justice. So mercy gets at it a little bit. Kindness gets at it a little bit. Love gets at it a lot of it, but not quite. So that's why we see the term steadfast love. There's no one English word that gets at the full idea of what this word hesed Oh, I got it pretty good that time. Did you hear me? Oh, excellent. Uh, this is what it means in Hebrew. So, uh, so that's why in your Bible you see the term steadfast love. Some of your Bibles may say unfailing love. Some scholars have started to use the word loyal love. Okay, Matt, if this word is such a big deal, what does it mean? Well, hesed calls out this notion that God loves us because he cannot help himself and he is not going to stop. To love is fundamental to his character, and his actions always flow from his character. His love is not conditional. It is not sentimental. He does not love the Israelites because they're so cute. He does not love you and me because we are so accomplished and awesome. No, he loves loves them because he is love. He loves you and I because he is love. It is fundamental to his character. This is the love that stays with Israel. As you read through the Old Testament and they fail him again and again and again, his love stays on them. It is unfailing. It is unconditional. This is the love that stays with you and me. This is the love that compels Jesus to go to the cross for die, to die for wicked sinners like you and us, even though we constantly reject him and turn away from him. God has hesed toward us. I didn't get it that time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep at it, though. Probably the closest uh, comparison that I, any of us can understand, certainly the, the one that makes it palatable for me, is the love of a parent for a child. Many of you are parents. So you'll have an, a notion of what I'm talking about. Even if you don't have children, you probably understand. You have parents. You understand this love. I have two daughters. They're right down here. Wave. Yep. Hello, people. Uh, Allie and Lexi, they are 18 and 16, and I love them. They drive me crazy a lot of the time. They don't uh, clean up the kitchen. They don't pick up after themselves. They don't always do what I ask them to. They're not always on time to leave for church, if you know what I'm saying. But I love them. I can't help myself. I don't just love them when they keep their rooms clean. 
I don't just love them when they get home before curfew. Um, I don't just love them when they do the things that, that I want them to. I love them all the time. I don't love them because they perform so well in their obedience. And truth be told, they're fine. They're good kids, really. Uh, but I don't just love them when they do the right things. I love them all the time. And I don't love them because they perform so well. I love them because I'm their dad, and I can't help it. I can't help it. I love them so much. This is a picture of the love that God has for us. This is a hint of what's shown for us here. And now, to double down on this point, I want to look at the language here. God shows hesed over the course of, what's the text say? A thousand generations. Now, in the next sentence, he talks about punishing the guilty to the third and the fourth generation. So, a thousand to three or four. We're meant to see the contrast here. Now, I know sometimes some of you are looking at this to me like, wait a minute, there's something about sins of the father. Can, can you talk about that for a second? Let me, let me just deal with that. From other, uh, some of you are thinking, okay, if my grandmother messed up something, does that mean that I have to deal with that? Or if I sin, does that mean my kids are going to pay for a price for that? Not quite. In other parts of Scripture, we see that that's not the case. Every man is accountable for his own sin. Uh, and that's a whole thing. We can talk about it some other time. Uh, you can find me in the lobby afterwards. Uh, but certainly we know that, that sin has consequence over multiple generations. The residue of sin, if you will, can show itself over generations. If, Say, for example, your parent struggles with alcohol abuse or something like that. Experts will say that you as their child are more likely to. And certainly the relational fallout from those things can show itself. But we're not punished for sins in that way. Again, that's a whole thing. What I want us to focus on is this comparison. So here's the score when it comes to God's character. Character, Hesed, God's unfailing, unstoppable, unrelenting love, a thousand. God's judgment on sin, three or four. That's the score, a thousand to three or four. Let me show you what this looks like. This is a thousand red dots. My daughter Lexi counted them for me. It's a thousand red dots. Now, you know, my notes down in the corner is a three or four black dots. So if God's Hesed, God's love for us is a thousand. This is what it might look like. And if God's judgment on our sin is three or four, that's what it might look like. Now, just because it's three or four, that's not zero, is it? It's not that God rolls over for sin. It's not that he doesn't hold people accountable for sin. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about people that are guilty of sin. He very much does. But the score here is a thousand to three or four. Just because it's zero or just because it's, it's three or four doesn't mean it's, it's, it's zero. It's not nothing. And we wouldn't want it to be. We don't want to worship a God who just lets sin go, who doesn't punish the guilty, who doesn't hold people accountable, who just lets people do whatever they want or lets evil flourish. I'm sure many of you, like me, have been watching the images coming out of Afghanistan in the last couple of weeks and mourning and grieving at the evil there. And maybe you, like me, have called out in prayer, God, do you see, will you do something about this evil and address it? Like, our hearts want God to satisfy his justice. We want him to visit sin. We want him to hold the guilty uh, accountable. But as powerful as his wrath is, and as big as his wrath is, and it is, his love is even more. His love is the overwhelmingly dominant form, uh, force in the universe. So when it comes to this word repentance this morning, this turning around, it's important that we see that we're not just turning from our sin, and that is a big, big deal, but we're turning to a God that loves us and welcomes us. Now, this does highlight attention, doesn't it? If God is so kind and loving and merciful, how is he going to rightfully deal with sin? Well, of course, that's where Jesus comes in. Praise the Lord. The gospel shows us that Jesus, as the Son of God, became a human, 
lived a perfect, sinless life, did the things that we could not do, and then he offered himself on the cross in our place as a substitute for our sin. And he did this because he loves us. Those Israelites would prove guilty of sin, and you and I are guilty of sin. God pours out on Christ the punishment that we deserve. God's justice is satisfied in Christ. As Jesus offers himself, the innocent one takes on guilt so that the guilty ones, you and me, can be declared innocent. This is what makes repentance so powerful, and this is even what makes it possible. Because when we turn to him, we're turning to a heavenly father who is ready to receive us, who has already dealt with our sin so that we can run toward his steadfast love. So we don't just repent from something, we repent to someone. Think of me back on that interstate so many years ago. I'm speeding along here. I realize I'm going the wrong direction, and I turn Not just for some arbitrary reason, but because there's a very important person on the end of that for me. Somebody who loves me, somebody who wants the best for me, somebody who I do not want to disappoint and be angry, and somebody who's going to receive me with love. Now this brings to our second point, repentance is not just about behavior, it's posture. Let's go back into the text, I want to pick up in verse 8. It says, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So there are two mentions of body language in this passage. One is this idea that Moses bows down before God. He has seen God in the fullness of his glory. He has heard about his great mercy and love, and he bows down. This, of course, is a gesture of humility and repentance. Even today, in places in the world that have kings and queens, you would bow, or at least, at the very least, curtsy. You make some sort of gesture toward a king or a queen, indicating that you are humble before them. Um, Some of you have maybe read some books about prayer, and it talks about our posture in prayer, that sometimes we even want to be prostrate, bowed down before him. Moses is bowed down to the earth. He is flat on his face before God. He's bowed down. He has a humble posture toward them. Now, and this is important because repentance, it's easy for us to think that it could be just about behavior change. That it's just, oh, oops, sorry, won't do that again. But that's not the picture that we see here in the text. Moses bows down, aware of God's great mercy and the Israelites' deep, deep sin. He is humble before them. There's another mention of body language here. I wonder if you guys caught it. It's this notion that the Israelite people are stiff-necked. Stiff-necked. I don't know about you guys. I have had a stiff neck on a couple occasions. You guys? Anybody? It's very painful. And more than being very painful, it's very, it's very disorienting. Like, it's very hard to walk away. You try walking when you can't actually turn your head. You, it's very easy to, like, get lost and bump into things. So, like, you can't do this. I've had some moments where I can't quite even, like, this is about as much as I could turn my head. And so, thankfully, most of the places that I go, I'm very basically familiar, so I can sort of feel my way around. But when you can't even turn your head to look where you're going, it can be a very frustrating experience to walk around. And that's the picture that Moses paints of the Israelite people here. But it's not flattery, right? No, he's saying they're stiff-necked. They won't turn their head. So even if they are going the wrong direction, it's going to be really hard for them to turn and go the right direction. So if God's going to have, see repentance among these people, the first thing that's going to have to happen is their necks are going to have to be not stiff. They're going to have to let go of some stubbornness. They're going to have to let go of some pride. They're going to have to let go of this idea that they know best. 
They're going to have to let go that they have it all figured out. So posture, this idea of humility, about not having a stiff neck, this is really important when it comes to the idea of repentance. So instead of a, instead of a humble bow down posture and uh, uh, submitted to God, they are stiff-necked. They refuse to turn. And this becomes a dominant picture of the Hebrew people throughout the rest of the Old Testament. In the Psalms, later in the Prophets, it leads to disaster after disaster after disaster, eventually culminating in their exile from the land that God places them in. And despite these disasters, they refuse to humble themselves and submit themselves to God. And it proves to be their ruin. So when we tell God through our attitudes or our behaviors or even our words, I don't need you. I know better. I've got this. Leave me alone. We're doing the same thing. We're not ready to repent, and we continue speeding in the wrong direction. But repentance is a posture of humility toward God that says, hey, I'm going the wrong direction. I want to turn and follow you. You know better. Think of me on the interstate all those years ago. What if I'd been just cruising along and be like, well, I don't care where the metro station is. I'm going this direction. I'm just going to keep going until I figure something out. What would happen? I, I'd be halfway across the country, right? I mean, it's, it's a terrible choice. Why would I do that? No. I was like, oops, I made a mistake. I need to turn around. Praise God for that interstate exit so I can turn around and go the right direction. If I'd been uh, stupid and stubborn, I may have, well, I'm going to run out of gas probably, but I would have been halfway across the country before I realized I'd made a terrible, terrible mistake. And I would have missed out on the joy of my father. Same thing for us. If we are stubborn and stiff-necked, we're going this direction, and we don't even want to listen to what God says about turning around. You're just like me on that interstate, speeding along in the right direction. Maybe confident in your choice, and you got great tunes on the radio or whatever, but you're going the right direction. But God gives you the chance to turn around. I just started listening to a a new podcast, or actually I think the podcast is a couple years old, but I just started listening uh, a couple days ago. It's one of these true crime podcasts, which is normally not my thing, but one of my colleagues at work recommended it. It's called Dr. Death. Have you guys heard about this? Anybody? A couple people. Of course, Ashley has heard about this. Yes. So it's about this uh, uh, surgeon in Dallas. Is that right, Ashley? Dallas, Texas. And um, he was a spinal surgeon. His name was Christopher Dunch. And it turns out he was a brilliant med student, like aced all his exams, very charming, good-looking, all this, and he decides he wants to go into spinal surgery. Well, this turns out to be a terrible idea. He is a terrible surgeon. Like, dozens and dozens of his patients end up paralyzed, and he does the wrong surgery. Some people, many of them actually die because he is so incompetent. And yet he just moves from hospital to hospital, and the the story is how this one doctor sort of follows him around and makes sure that he is held accountable and brought to justice. But as the system is sort of waiting to catch up with him, you're really struck by the number of times he could have just said, you know what, I'm wrong. I'm not good at this. I need to stop this. I need to stop this and be accountable for my actions and go a different way. But instead, I'm just going to run. I'm just going to hide. I'm just going to cover my tracks and not get found out about this. And the, the podcast gets into it a little bit. Why, why would he keep doing, keep doing this? And it really is about pride. He just doesn't want to admit he's not the coolest kid or the smartest. He has this idea that being a, a surgeon is the epitome of medical profession. So he's just going to do it no matter how many people he hurts. And so if all these people that die, all these people that are in the hospital, all the money and lawsuits, none of it changes his mind. And so he's in jail. There are lawsuits a gazillion, he's going to be in jail for a long, long time. And of course, the people that he hurt are never going to recover. And as you listen, it just strikes you, how could he be so stubborn? How could he be so prideful? How could he just not stop and turn around? 
But you and I do the same thing sometimes. Maybe we don't make mistakes on that uh, scale, and we don't hurt people like that. Um, but we run the same risks. So that's why we say that repentance is a gift. It's an opportunity given to us by a merciful, loving Heavenly Father for us to turn from our own way, which can only lead to disaster, and turn toward him who loves us and enjoy him, the one that we were created for. And since it is a gift, we need to take a humble posture and receive it. Let me add one last thing here, and that is repentance is not a one-shot deal. I know as I've been talking this morning, a couple of you are like, oh yeah, Matt, I repented back in high school or college or whenever it is that you first trusted the Lord. Yep, got that. Check the box, Matt. Check the box, Matt. You can just move along here. But repentance is not just a one-shot deal. It must be a lifelong practice. And I believe, for, certainly for the church in North America, is in deep, deep need of it. I'm nervous about where we see culture going with this. I'm worried that we've forgotten how to admit that we're wrong. I'm, I'm worried that somehow many of us think we don't need to, um, that we can't listen to each other, we can't open our eyes and consider other opinions or any of that, that all of us who follow Jesus, if we are so stubborn and unrepentant in some of these things, we run a great risk in our culture. And so... I'm persuaded that if we call ourselves a follower of Jesus, we need to be active repenters. Maybe some of you have been listening to another podcast. I know, I'm full of podcast mentions today. Sorry about that. They're really good, though, for what that's worth. Um, This one's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church. It's by Christianity Today. Um, If you haven't been listening, I I recommend it. And I won't go into super details about it, but it is yet another story of an influential Christian leader undone by his refusal to repent and the catastrophic damage he did on that. Sam Albury is a a writer and pastor based in England, and he says this. He says, we repent our way into fruitfulness for God. We don't assert, spend, strategize, excel, or impress our way there. Spiritually, we're never quicker than when we're on our knees. So I don't want to run the risk of thinking this, and I don't want this for you. I don't want us to think that because we prayed a prayer one day that we're off the hook here. I want all of us to consider that Jesus might be calling us today to repent from something. That there's something that we're holding on to that might be taking us away from him. That has us going the wrong direction. That today might be a day where we need to turn around and go back toward him. Maybe it's a relationship you need to rethink. Maybe it's a habit or addiction that you need to give up. Maybe it's a pattern of anger or bitterness that is eating your soul and crushing your relationships. Maybe it's the way you handle your social media. Maybe, there are, maybe there's just something you know God wants you to give up, but you just won't let it go. You just want to keep speeding in the wrong direction. Well, today can be a day of repentance, and I hope you'll let it. I don't know what you might need to repent from today. But I do know who you can repent to, a gracious father that is waiting for you with steadfast love. And let me just say this, if you've never trusted Jesus as your savior today, today can be a day of repentance for you too, to stop going your own way, to confess your need for him, to admit your sin and turn to him. Much like me on that interstate so many years ago, I hope you'll take the exit, turn around and speed toward your heavenly father who loves you so much He gave up his one and only son to take away your sin. Repentance is a gift. He gives us the chance to turn around, and it is to his glory and our joy when we receive that.